welcome to the Owl Hoot Podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. This is a show for any person interested in the environment and sustainability. I arrived at a point in my own life where I wanted to know more about the state of our planet and how I can play my part, albeit small, in mitigating climate change, reducing pollution and supporting biodiversity. I decided that chatting to others who are already doing something might be a good place to start. So each episode will feature a different guest telling their stories in and around an environmental activity that will perhaps provide you with ideas that you can incorporate into your own life. Enjoy listening and let me know if you have a topic you'd like to hear more about on the podcast and I'll do my best to address it. Joining me today is Melissa Bruntlett, who alongside her husband, Chris, founded Medacity. They work with organisations communicating the benefits of sustainable multimodal transport to inspire happier and healthier cities. Together, they have authored two books, Building the Cycling City, The Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality, and Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. Canadian, but now living in Delft in the Netherlands, Melissa also works for a mobility consultancy, promoting the knowledge, policy and design principles gained in the Netherlands to other countries across Europe and North America. I'm excited to hear some of the ideas that can transform the structure of transport in cities. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Melissa to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no, you're, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So it's, um, I've not, not long finished your book, so I'm really excited to talk about that. But before we get into it, can you just give us a bit of a run through of you weren't always in transport. Um, <laughs> how did that become a thing for you? And I'm sure at some point through that story, you're going to mention the fact that you now live in the Netherlands and you didn't always live in the Netherlands. So I'm over to you, Melissa, uh, to give me a bit of background. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I uh, originally, when I was in high school, decided I wanted to become a fashion designer. And so that was the career path I followed through university. And for the first seven years or so, uh, post-graduating uh, with a, a bachelor's degree in specializing in fashion design. Um, and that took me, I was living in Toronto, uh, Ontario at the time took me sort of into a few jobs here and there. And then eventually an opportunity for my husband, Chris came up to move us to Vancouver. So uh, just as, just like me, he was also working not in transport. He studied architecture and he came to Vancouver. We all came to Vancouver to work for an architectural firm there. And within a short period of time after moving there, we started to see a lot of the transformations happening in the city to make cycling uh, much more comfortable for people to choose as a transport option. So when the opportunity came, we were both working within a 20 minute bike ride of our work. We decided to uh, give up our family car and live car light because there were a lot of car, fare, car share uh, options in Vancouver at the time uh, and give cycling a try. And it was through that experience and through um, experiencing what it was like to travel with two small children by bicycle and the various adapted ways that we can do that, that I, I found myself falling into an advocacy role in the city of Vancouver to help communicate to peers how it was possible that I could travel uh, around a big city like Vancouver with 800,000 people with a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the time, um, how it was easy the benefits that I was experiencing in terms of greater connection with my kids, greater connection with the city, better uh, experiences 
within the city in terms of being much more in touch with the natural and built environment. Uh, and then that sort of just ballooned over time. So Chris and I both sort of found ourselves as inadvertent advocates for cycling, uh, not our intention. And that telling people what it was that was so beneficial about cities that prioritize walking and cycling, uh, not just for me, but for my kids and for um, all the other people within cities. And that journey took us to starting Medacity, as you mentioned in the, in the opening. Uh, which eventually took, gave us the opportunity to travel here to the Netherlands in 2016 for five weeks. Um, and the intention was to write five blogs for a travel series for a local uh, media company in Vancouver about the various stories of the cities of Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Utrecht, Eindhoven and Groningen. But that spiraled out of control because there's so much to tell here that led to the writing of the first book, Building the Cycling City. And with that, uh, we both made connections that led to jobs here in the Netherlands. And so, yes, as, as you've mentioned, uh, in 2019, after our, our book was published in 2018, one year later, we found ourselves uh, here living in Delft, uh, working for companies that were doing exactly what our book intended to do, communicating the ideas uh, and policies and designs um, of Dutch cities to uh, international cities and, telling, and helping them realize how they can transform into more cycling and walking friendly cities uh, using the Dutch uh, model as inspiration to apply that in context. And then, yeah, within the first year of living here, you know, we expected a lot of, a lot of the quality of life changes that we did experience, but not to the scale that we did. And that's what led us to writing Curbing Traffic is, is really communicating what it felt, what it feels like to live in a low car city and uh, how important that is to so many people and for us to export this idea as far as possible. I mean, it's it's a really big deal, isn't it? Moving to a different country that doesn't even have your first language. How sure were you that this was going to be a good move for you? I think for us, we were fairly certain it was going to be a good move. We knew the language was going to be and continues to be a struggle. Uh, our children, uh, fortunately, have been quite resilient and picked up the language a lot faster than mom and dad. And actually, this week, I've, I've started just another round of Dutch lessons to try to beef up, beef up my uh, language skills. But I think we found ourselves in Vancouver at this point where we were ready to downsize. Um, we've been living in the city for 11 years. And we're just ready to um, have a slower pace. And you know, like many people, you want to move to a smaller town and just downsize a little bit in terms of the scale of life around you, as much as we love Vancouver. But where we found ourselves was unable to find a city in and around where we were living that could emulate the quality of life we enjoyed in Vancouver, where we could walk to our local shops, where we could bike to local amenities, to school, to work comfortably without having to fall backwards uh, into that role where we found we would find ourselves again fighting uh, for space on the road with cars, uh, which is where we had started the journey back in 2007, 2008. So, you know, by 2018, we were, we were ready to not have to do that again. And being that we fell in love with this country when we were here and our experiences here, and knowing that we could find a city like Delft uh, with just 100,000 people where we could enjoy all those same uh, aspects and quality of life that we did, it seemed the natural transition for us. Uh, so yeah, despite the, despite the language and the cultural 
uh, barriers because they're, you know, it's a completely different culture from our own as well in Canada. Um, we've settled in nicely. We still, you know, we're still getting used to things, but I think, you know, two and a half years in, we're definitely certain that we've made, we've made the right move, but it was a big deal. It certainly was. And, yeah. you know, there's always that what if, but uh, we're happy to report that so far so good. Yeah, I'm really pleased for you that that has gone well. Um, and you raise through that narrative quite an interesting thing that I felt from your book was that your own personal experience and what you want as a family and the culture and the society you live in, that is the thread in your Curbing Traffic book that, I, that I've just read. And it was kind of a surprise to me because I, I kind of thought environment, curbing traffic, let's just get rid of the tailpipe but actually it's so much bigger than that in your you know and you very much put in my mind that actually at the center of change isn't how do we get rid of the car or how do we make the car more climate friendly it's what are people uh, how do they thrive in, a, in an urban environment was that always your intention with the book to come at it from a, a people perspective first and foremost that's the way I interpreted it anyway yeah you know you're absolutely right uh it's 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 funny because you're the first person to have caught up to that in terms of the title versus or noted it anyways as to what's in the book but when Chris and I sat down and said okay I think this story this second story is really important for us to share it was very much focused on how we felt as individuals and how we watched and how our children were feeling, how we perceive them to be feeling anyways, because you can only know so much how your kids are feeling. <laughs> but those impacts of living in a place with fewer cars, that's what we really wanted to communicate. And we were very, it was very important to us that we dug into the research of, of why that's important uh, for our mental health and our physical health and our sociological health in terms of how we interact with each other. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's first and foremost, we wanted this to be a book about the impact on human beings for low car because so often we do as you pointed out we talk about the benefits to the environment we talk about the benefits to traffic safety and you know sort of those external factors but we so rarely talk about the internal factors uh, for us as human beings and i think for for both of us we're at a point now where um, yes all of the other arguments are very valid for reducing uh, combustion engines in our in our cities uh, or any motor vehicle for that matter but the compelling argument now needs to be, how do we improve the life for every individual? Because for a lot of people, climate, the climate crisis isn't enough or traffic safety isn't enough. But if politicians and policymakers are really focused on making life better for, for people, then this is the case as to why. And is that something within your, your work that you've been doing uh, in addition for your consultancy and for your, uh, your day job? <laughs> is, that, is that a theme where you're trying to get people who are interested in changing their towns or cities that actually the focus at the planning stage needs to be the person rather than how do we deal with uh, changing lanes in, you know, in the middle of a city? Uh, how, do, how does that work? It's, I mean, I think it's still a growing con uh, conversation. So, uh, you know, most uh, planners and designers do focus on how do we design lanes that are safer? How do we transform our street? Um, but there are those of us within the industry that are pushing for this other conversation and, and helping to communicate it to the non-technicians because that's, at the end of the day, a lot of these people are the ones that make the decisions around cities or people that don't necessarily understand the technical, but if you can give them the sociological reason as to why this is important, 
it helps them to understand better. Uh, so if you say, okay, well, if we reduce the lane by from three meters down to two and a half meters for a car, or I don't know if that's, that's more of a bike lane, but anyway, <laughs> if you increase a bike lane from one meter to two and a half meters, you know, it has X, Y, Z benefits in terms of traffic safety. That means something for a technician or someone who's doing traffic modeling. But if you say to an everyday citizen or to a politician that's not a technician, if you increase this bike lane, you increase the capacity and the options for people for transport, which opens it up to a broader spectrum of people and not just those that can afford to drive. That's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a growing one. I wouldn't say that it's one that we have every day, but it is one that I myself definitely try to, to keep having with people and keep pushing that, that envelope a little bit further to move beyond just the technical to understand uh, more it's referred to as sort of software, but more of like the, the human impact. Okay. Another thing that comes through is, and I don't know whether this is true or it's just how I've interpreted it, is, is that if you get the infrastructure right on transport in terms of space for walkers and bicycles and any other non-car way of getting from A to B, then you'll naturally lead to a reduction in cars. Is that is that true, or is um, but it it seems from what you're that's that's how I I wondered whether that if you just if you focus on making it better for everybody else, then the natural tendency will be for lower less people using cars. I think I mean I certainly think it's a, a much more sort of nuanced argument mm -hmm. or or case, but definitely it's when. What we see in cities that are investing in cycling, not just in the Netherlands, but in Vancouver, for example, they invested a lot from 2008 and they, they continue to, but a bulk of that was 2008 to 2018. You saw that shift in how people moved because they had more options all of a sudden. So by improving the infrastructure or addressing the network so that there are other ways for people to get around and they're not solely reliant on getting around by a car, you do see that shift uh, inherently because people who do drive see another option. People who are tired of being stuck in traffic will, will look and see, oh, there's, there's this bike lane right here where I could move much faster and I could get some exercise. I'm not going that far. This is a good option. You know, there's just this inherent acknowledgement that uh, suddenly there are more choices. And then as more you see more people doing these activities, using cycling or walking to get around or mixing that with public transport, then you see that shift start to happen as people recognize there is another choice, but it yeah it takes time, uh, it takes investment. It's not a it's not a quick sort of yeah. snap and you're it's fixed. But it does you know in that ten years we were in Vancouver we saw a definite definite modal shift uh, in terms of how people got around Vancouver just as a result of the investments they were making uh, in and around the city in cycling and walking. And what is the what is the dialogue about? Uh, in addition to that, is is there a dialogue around reducing car use to those that are using it the most? Are, are there persuasive arguments to be had for those that have just automatically used the car as a way of getting to where they need to be? I say this with my own experience and having a bit more time just to walk in my own town when I have when I have a, an errand to run. I would have some time ago just gone well i'll go in the car because I, I have a car why would i not go in the car but obviously going on this environmental journey it's made me think about <laughs> such things uh, but i i've worked quite quickly mm. into my own life about 
not taking the car as an automatic reflex. What sort of uh, conversations are there about getting people out of their cars that persuade them that that's, that's, that's a pretty good choice to, to be had? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any really good examples. I think most of it comes down to, you know, I think of like bike to work weeks and things like that, where they, they communicate to people there is this other option and it becomes an attractive one. Oftentimes people that are the ones that are driving. But what we found in the Netherlands in, in the research uh, and sort of the transport patterns over the course of when they started this uh, major investment in cycling in the early 70s till now, is a lot of it actually does come down to engineering in that they make car travel the least efficient option for short trips, especially. So long distance trips, we still have ample motorways that are often filled with cars here that don't, I don't want anyone to have any misgivings about that. <laughs> yeah. But going to the store to do your groceries is easier oftentimes if you do it by bike because most uh, networks are designed in a way that makes through traffic really inconvenient for cars so you have at a very basic level you have a hierarchy of roads of your your flow roads or your highways your through roads which would be like your arterials and then your neighborhood streets and getting around those neighborhood streets it's very difficult to rat run it's not comfortable it's super inconvenient it's more convenient to go all the way around but if you have to go all the way around a neighborhood to get to the other side then walking or cycling becomes the natural choice because it's faster it's more efficient so in that way, it's through engineering that they've helped to shift those trips from car travel to cycling and walking by making walking and cycling the, the most logical choice in terms of people that just don't want to spend a lot of time moving around, trying to find parking, uh, having to navigate through lights and what have you. Um, so that's been, I think that's been the key to success here. Um, and oftentimes it's the key to success when other cities are adapting this is how do we make short trips uh, under five kilometers much more convenient by cycling than by car and then you see that inherent shift because we're pragmatic people or we're a pragmatic species we do what makes sense even if we're not uh, like you and i helping to save the environment as well you know most people don't want to waste time so so making those trips easier the more sustainable trips easier is through engineering is is one of the key factors and can you say that the, the way that it is set up in the Netherlands can be done pretty much anywhere? Are there things that would stop it being done elsewhere? Um, I would say absolutely. But I always say with a caveat, it's not copy paste. So it's about taking the ideas from here and applying them in a way that makes sense in the UK, in France, in Canada, in the US, in New Zealand, um, because mo as most people will argue, and they're absolutely right, the street networks are different. But it doesn't mean that they can't be adapted in a way to bring more of that model in. So I think of the, sub the suburbs where my parents live uh, just south of Toronto in Canada. And there's absolutely a way to adapt those to um, make them more convenient for walking and cycling to reduce necessary car unnecessary car trips sorry, by applying traffic calming which can be as simple as putting uh, like reducing speeds first and foremost on neighborhood streets uh, putting out planters, putting in diverters. So it helps to reduce uh, rat running or, or people racing from one place to another and using a side street to do so. You know, that's it's relatively easy in these cauliflower sort of neighborhoods that have been designed in most suburbs to, to apply that traffic calming. And then also thinking, you know, beyond that, how do we plan 
these neighborhoods, making sure that amenities are thought of as we're um, designing new neighborhoods, you know, making sure that there is shopping, there are services nearby that are walkable and cyclable to get to. I mean, it's, it's a much bigger, <laughs> it's such a big idea, but that we do see it. And that's the first book we wrote, Building the Cycling City, really looks at that, is looks at cities in Canada and the US that are taking these ideas uh, and applying them on their local streets in a sort of made for them way. So a made in Portland or, or made in Calgary kind of way. So it's absolutely possible. And there's, there's lots of inspiration to be had. We often say they've made all the mistakes here. So now everyone else can just learn from them and, and do something even better. Well, and there's the thing, isn't it? The fact that, you know, we're in a world where we can communicate to anyone and everyone. There's no point in reinventing the wheel if, if we found a solution that's going to work somewhere. Let's just transport it, pardon the pun, to other places. I'm wondering whether because of the current climate emergency where transport is coming under quite a lot of scrutiny, understandably, because of the fossil fuel impact on climate change, whether now is actually a really useful time to be sharing that information, because if changes are going to be made to try to reduce numbers of people in cars, as well as converting them to electric, whether the appetite for hearing about how to change the transport within cities is, is now higher. Is that, is, are you finding that that's the case? I certainly see that the case uh, within urban transport professionals and it, within the urban planning sort of circles is that's the conversation that's happening is, is very much focused on, okay, now it's time, we need to do something. I think what's been un the unfortunate benefit of, it, unfortunate benefits the wrong way of saying that, but with uh, COVID, it's actually pushed that conversation further faster but not because of the climate crisis, unfortunately, but because people needed to find new transport options. But I think that's helped to bolster the conversation forward in terms of um, how do we create uh, safer streets for walking and cycling, but then how do we facilitate walking and cycling as a transport option because public transport, people are nervous about it, but we can't have everyone get in a car because of well, the climate crisis, but also our streets just don't have the capacity. And so that's, that's helped to push it forward. And I certainly know that, um, you know, when it comes to looking at more sustainable options, I mean, that's, I work for an organization obviously that focuses on that. So I hear that conversation a lot, but more and more cities are thinking, how do we, uh, how do we address this? How do we provide more options to try to make that shift? Um, and at the same time, those, people that are thinking a little bit further ahead are also thinking, yes, electric cars uh, help to solve some of the problems around the climate crisis, but they don't necessarily solve all of the problems in terms of materials and, and manufacturing and battery life and street damage from a heavier vehicle, but also uh, just in terms of congestion, they're not gonna solve that problem. And so people are now starting to think more innovatively, how do we uh, come up with new vehicles? How do we address this? And you know, we see, the explosion of cargo bikes happening in a lot of cities as a new family transport option, as a new logistics option uh, that are much uh, less damaging on the environment. And you know, when we're talking about specifically for logistics, deliveries within city centers, oftentimes those times those really big lorries are not required to do the deliveries that that are needed. So these are becoming more especially here, but elsewhere as well uh, in other countries, you know, we're seeing more and more of these greener logistics options 
coming up. So I'm excited. I hope that this is a this is a continuing trend that will carry on uh, uh, more and more because um, obviously I have. I mean, everyone has a personal investment in what the future holds. But as a as a mother, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing my utmost for my kids to to say I tried. I did my absolute best. <laughs> for sure, I'd like to just come back to that whole. You've had that whole lived experience. Not only have you been motivated because of your work, but the fact that you um, you've had these two experiences of living in different places and now uh, where you are in Delft, that's that, a new environment where you can walk and cycle and you don't have a car at all. It's an interesting story to, to, to hear. How has it been uh, um, and did it meet your expectation in terms of what it would actually be like living without a car? Yeah, so we found ourselves living completely car free, whereas we'd been car light uh, up until this point. And uh, I think, you know, there's always a bit of worry because, you know, there were certain trips that we needed to rely on uh, to have a car for in Canada, that the same would be true here. We weren't sure where we would find ourselves, but we were actually pleased uh, at the number of trips that we could still make by bicycle or by a mixture of bikes and public transport to get to where we needed to. Uh, the most notable was last summer, our son uh, went to a summer camp in the north of the country. And there is normally a bus that picks the kids up and takes them there. But because of Corona, unfortunately, that didn't uh, happen last year. And we found ourselves sort of wondering, how do we get him there? And through a combination of the train from Delft to a nearby station and the Ove feats or the, the public bike share through the train, uh, train stations, we were able to cycle with him a fair distance to his camp, but that whole way, all of the route was easy to navigate. There were cycle paths through all of the rural countryside to get us there. And then we could come back ourselves, take the train home and, uh, you know, through a little bit of extra work, we managed to get him there without having to have a car. And so I think, you know, for us, that, that's a bit of an extreme case. I think for a lot of Dutch people, they probably think we're a little cuckoo for doing it. <laughs> but for us, it sort of proved that there was there was an option. We didn't have to have a car to get everywhere. Um, so it's been a nice revelation. Um, it's obviously less of a financial burden on our part, sure. uh, having to worry about owning and storing one. But yeah, certainly, you know, it's it's been... Uh, a positive experience for one, for us at least. And, and I'm glad to know that, you know, we live in a place that allows us to live this way uh, quite comfortably. Yeah. And sort of on that theme, you mentioned in your book that you're obviously being able to embrace the fact that you don't have a car, but also that those perhaps that actually a car is more problematic for and is less accessible can still get around quite easily without one. Can you tell us a little bit more about how actually the fact that the system is set up in the way that it is actually makes it more accessible to a greater range of people? Yeah, uh, yeah. So in the book, we tell the story of Maya, who is a friend of ours uh, living here in Delft, who is living with multiple sclerosis. So she's been on a slow sort of downward grade in terms of her physical ability to get around on with her own body. And so uh, as at a certain point, she has had to start relying on using a mobility scooter to get around. And, you know, we, we, we see lots of people getting around with mobility scooters or on adaptive cycles here. And we, before we interviewed her, 
we're like, oh, of course it's, it's accessible. We see it happening, but listening to her, she really opened our eyes to how important these traffic calm streets are in terms of ensuring that she doesn't have to rely on the quality of a sidewalk to get around. Mm -hmm. She can just use the street uh, to get around comfortably. But even more so, she is studying um, in Den Haag, just uh, about a half an hour bike ride from where we are. And the infrastructure, the way it is, and the traffic coming and the, the bike, uh, the cycle tracks being the way they are, she can use the battery power in her scootmobile to get her from Delft all the way to Den Haag to, for her lessons without having to rely on someone to drive her there or having to hire a taxi or an adaptive taxi to get her there, or even having to go through what can be a quite burdensome, burdensome experience of, of coordinating with the public transport to get her on a train and where she needs to go. So it's really liberating for her and for individuals like her who uh, are maybe less mobile physically, but have these tools mm -hmm. to be able to use them to empower themselves to get to where they need to go. Um, you know, she really points out, I, I don't want to be dependent on others to experience the city, to be able to do what I need to do. And the way it's been designed here really enables that for her. Yeah. And I think um, it's, it's so important, isn't it, to allow everybody to have that sort of independence and accessibility to the things that we all, you know, those that are able-bodied or, or, or that are in a more economic financial position can make choices quite easily whereas um, others can't and to be able to give everyone options about getting employment as you you know and getting about um, is, is really mm -hmm. quite crucial and I think those are things that I hadn't thought about until until I'd read the book so <laughs> definitely <Yeah>. I would definitely <laughs> encourage others to, to look at it it's, it's such a it's such an inclusive book, actually, uh, because it covers so many different types of people. Well, it just covers everyone. You go right from children to um, to old age and everyone in between. What are you, what are you hoping? Because I know you're great advocates, uh, you and, and Chris, about storytelling, and I'm a real fan of getting points across with with a story. What do you hope to achieve by this kind of storytelling? I think our our number one goal has always been to help to humanize these stories for people. I think, oh, I know a lot of times um, the conversations focus so heavily on, um, on mode share or on expenses or on, you know, the, the data, which is important in terms of making a compelling case for why cities should invest in these mm -hmm. things. But oftentimes the misunderstanding uh, beyond that is, well, I don't understand how this impacts me. I don't understand you know, why this is important. Uh, and by humanizing the, the benefits of sustainable mobility uh, and through the storytelling, I think it helps to get people to understand better what it is we're all trying to achieve. It's not just about making everyone, you know, uh, a capital C cyclist, for example, yeah. or, or turning everyone into, into an environmentalist. It's about, you know, really, making sure that, as you said, anyone, you know, from childhood to old age, ability to non-ability, economic prosperity to economic strife has opportunities to move around their city independently, comfortably, safely, um, and happily. And so that's why storytelling for us is just so important. It's, 
it's not about the mode, it's not about the tool, it's about the people who use them to get around. Yeah. And you're very careful to talk about not boxing people and saying, oh, that's a cyclist and that's a, that's a car driver. Can you explain why you've just made sort of that conscious decision not to pigeonhole people? Oh, yeah, it's a very easy answer. <laughs> um, what Part of what inspired Chris and I to get started is that uh, what we saw in the media was we, as, as people that used bikes to get around, were referred to as cyclists. And we were at, in, in a battle or at war with motorists or with drivers, but we were also drivers. <laughs> so it didn't make sense to us that we've, we've pigeonholed people by their modes, whether they're a pedestrian or a cyclist or a motorist, and then we pit each other against each other. And, and it's, it's just not conducive. It's not, it's, it's not helpful to any arguments. And so we have made a really concerted effort wherever possible to remove those labels where it makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's just, yeah, today I'm a cyclist. That's just how it is. But by removing those labels and referring to people as a person on a bike or a person pushing a stroller or a child doing this, we, it's, it comes back to that idea again of, of really humanizing people and, and yeah, labels in general tend to not help us in any discourse, whether it's transport or otherwise. So yeah, bringing it back to, to the individual is, is the main reason why we did that. Yeah. I, I, that, that sounds eminently sensible for sure. <laughs> uh, where do you, where do you hope to go with this uh, ongoing conversation? What do you think will be next for, for the two of you? Ah, that's a great question. I think we're both right now really focused, you know, we've, we've now written this book and, and we'll continue to do the promotion, but we want to really put our efforts into our professions and, and really help the, the organizations that we work with to really keep pushing this conversation forward of the benefits of uh, a human powered travel. Mm. And, you know, for, for my part, I see at least for myself, um, a continuation in sort of the focusing a lot on uh, the equity of it. And so how do we get more women involved? How do we make sure that more people with uh, limited mobility are involved in the conversation? How do we bring more diversity into urban planning? Um, because that's, it was a theme that came up again and again in the book is part of the reason that we don't uh, build our cities for everyone yet is because everyone's not a part of the conversation. And so that's, for me, that's really important is we start to see that shift in the industry. Uh, so we can start seeing that shift on the streets as well in terms of who has access to as many transport options as possible. Yeah, and you talk about everybody being involved in the conversation. How do you get, because uh, obviously everyone is involved in this conversation to a, a greater or lesser degree. How, how do you get that sort of dialogue going at every sort of level? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's uh, an excellent question. It's not an easy question. <laughs> One of the things, I mean, well, there's several things, but one of the first places to start, you know, if you work in the transport industry is to look around you, who are you working with? If you're involved in the hiring decisions, are you hiring people that just look like you? Or are you taking into account the experience of people that don't look like you and, and bringing them uh, into your organization or uh, giving them opportunities to be uh, involved in these decisions and planning that happen? The same goes for leadership at various levels, whether that's, you know, our politicians, are we seeing diversity in our politicians? If not, then something needs to change. And um, whether that is supporting someone, uh, supporting women, supporting people of color in, in their runs for 
political bids or whether it's supporting community organizations that are more diverse, you know, that's, a, a, that's certainly a place to start. Uh, and then at the very, you know, grassroots level of it, when we're doing engagement, when we're having these conversations about neighborhood plans with communities, making sure that that engagement is being brought to the groups that you're trying to trying to represent. So, you know, just going to the community center next to city hall is probably not going to get a diverse group of people to come out and, and be part of the conversation. But if you go to the neighborhoods where there is more people of color or more people of different backgrounds, if you go to uh, community centers where women are, you know, doing, you know, having children's activities and, and talking to the women there, bringing the engagement to them is mm -hmm. one of the, the first steps people can take to really start to get a more broad idea of, of what it is people want. Um, because unfortunately, up until this point, most engagement unfortunately happens when those groups can't, uh, can't attend because they're working part time or they're minding children or, you know, they're busy getting dinner ready uh, for their families or, or any other number of things. So, you know, really taking into account how do we reach the people we want to want to get want to be involved in this conversation and then how do we bring this conversation to them instead of asking them always to come to us sure yeah that's a that's a really interesting good point well made drawing to a close i've got two last questions for you melissa the first of which is for somebody that's listening to this uh, podcast episode what would be your recommendation to them about transport that's such a broad question. Yes, it is. I realize <laughs> <laughs> you can um, say anything. <laughs> I can. I can go anywhere. <laughs> I would say to it's a, it's a message. I think I've been saying to people interested in cycling uh, for a long time that you know if you're interested in cycling and but you're you're nervous or you're curious, find uh, local groups that you can join that you you can just experience cycling or just you know give it a try. Start small, you know bike to work weeks are a great entry point for a lot of people but for for many people it's a, it's a trip too far so just you know bike to the local store bike to a friend's house you know if you want to take up cycling as a sustainable transport option that's probably the one of the easiest ways to get started or just try switching some of your trips from getting in your car to try walking instead and you know there's you know as we pointed in the book there's so many benefits uh, to that at a very human level that you can gain yeah, and then for those of for those of us, and for those other of us that are working in transport or working to improve transport, um, you know, we need to stop settling. We need to push past and not settle for the status quo. We really need to keep pushing that envelope because what we're seeing more and more is the appetite is out there. People want this. Unfortunately, we hear from the vocal minority more more often than not in terms of people that don't uh, want to see their streets change, but what is found time and time again is when we make even small investments in changing from car-based systems to more sustainable options, people adapt, people are happier and they welcome the change. Uh, so be bold, be brave yeah. <laughs> and just push forward. That's, that's great advice. Start, you're effectively saying start from where you're at uh, and, and be brave, which is, which is cool. Um, and then finally, how do you see sustainable transport being in 2050 or how do you hope to see it in 2050? I really hope that we 
don't undervalue the, the importance of the simple modes of transport. Um, I see so many conversations around high-tech solutions, and I think we, ha we have a lot of the solutions. We have the ability to walk or roll through our cities um, or cycle through your city. Uh, so I, my hope, my vision for the future is one that's greener in terms of the landscape, <laughs> more, more nature, but also more people choosing uh, walking or, or human-powered movement to get around their city. Um, that's what I hope. Anyways, I hope for for lively public spaces and and lots of people being able to interact with each other on a very human level. Well, that's that's a really nice picture to to end on. Lots of people gathering together, smiling at each other, having good interactions. So, thank you so yeah. much, <laughs> Melissa. It's 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 been great to have you on and uh, hear all we have to share about this really fascinating subject. So, thanks. Oh, thanks, Carolyn, so much for having me. It's it's been uh, it's been fun. Well, what a great episode to end this first podcast series. We can all relate to modes of travel to get us from one place to another, whether it be on foot, cycling, using public transport, or in a car. I think the way in which Melissa and Chris have put people at the centre of their narrative for sustainable transport is hugely powerful and persuasive, and I can highly recommend their reading their latest book, Curbing Traffic. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and you for listening. I have been grateful to my nine guests on this first series for sharing their environmental stories, and I've learned such a great deal whilst thoroughly enjoying chatting to them. If you want to hear more stories of people doing great things that positively impact our environment, there will be more episodes starting in September. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and if so, please do rate and review the podcast. It would be a great help. Thanks. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>